Maggie Shipstead, congratulations. Thank you so much. And we spoke not long ago, of course, and I know you were starting a new novel then. Have you been able to write since being long-listed and short-listed? No, not at all. <laughs> um, I think I hauled that out and dusted it off maybe a week ago and, and started reading it and already made a big change in, in the way I was approaching it. So I felt a sense of accomplishment about that. But I've also just uh, just today in my email inbox, I got the copy edits on my short story collection that comes out uh, next summer. So, you know, I think the new novel is going to get pushed down the priority ladder kind of yet again. <laughs> yeah, I guess edits on short stories a bit easier than starting a whole big new project. Delightfully so, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> At least you've got something to work on. Exactly. And so, Maggie, let's talk about this book, Great Circle, what you've been shortlisted for, you know, because it begins with a fictional journal entry by Marion Graves. It's the last known entry by this intrepid pilot. Just tell us what's going on. Marion Graves is a pilot who uh, has vanished in 19, or vanishes in 1950 while trying to fly around the world north-south over the north and south poles. And some years later, her logbook is found, which she's been using sort of as a journal. So the book starts with her last journal entry before trying to fly um, from Antarctica to New Zealand. And it's uh, it's her sort of, um, she knows her chances of making it aren't great. And so she's sort of writing through that in this little logbook. And the entry begins, I was born to be a wanderer. Where's this line from? Um, so there's a statue of Jean Batten, the uh, Kiwi aviatrix, who was the first person to fly from London to New Zealand in, I believe, 1934. My dates are a little rusty now. It's been <laughs> a few months since I've talked about the book. Um, and, and at the International Terminal in Auckland, there's a, a statue of her. And I saw it in 2012 for the first time when I was there. And this sort of sparked this idea of writing a book about a female pilot. And, and the quote is, I was um, destined to be a wanderer. I knew it had one word different. <laughs> and I, I changed it to, I was born to be a wanderer. Uh, for my book. And so Great Circle kind of takes us in in quite a lot of circles, actually. We sort of go back to Marion's origin story. Where did she grow up? Marion grows up in Missoula, Montana, in kind of the 20s and 30s. And at that point, it was very much a frontier town and um, now is a, a small city university town um, where I've spent a couple months. But she uh, is, for all intents and purposes, an orphan. And she and her twin brother are raised by their uncle, who's sort of a dissolute uh, artist and gambler. And he sort of lets them have this very free-range childhood, um, kind of roaming through the, the mountains and forests of Montana. And Marion discovers she loves flying. I mean, how does that even happen to someone like her? She, I mean, even as a child, she has this urge toward freedom and toward expanding her horizons. And she kind of knows she needs to leave Missoula, even though she loves it. Um, and she's riding her horse up on a, a mountain ridge one morning and these two barnstormers fly over her sort of dangerously low um, in biplanes. And, and she sort of sees them as, uh, I think in the book it says, as an announcing angel. Um, and she sort of knows that this is her destiny. And she's always been interested in machinery and cars and, and um, the sort of uh, engines of things. And, and so she seeks out these planes and then later becomes determined to find a way to fly, which um, eventually involves her striking a fairly dark bargain with a, a local bootlegger. 
I mean, and at times it sort of constricts her. Um, she isn't able to participate as she would like as a woman in this industry, but she is able at one point to join the war effort. What does she do? <laughs> um, so, yeah, during World War II, there were uh, civilian female pilots who transported warplanes both in the UK and in the US. And uh, in the UK, it's called the Air Transport Auxiliary and, and started in 1939, I believe, and was both men and women together. Um, and so they would take planes from factories to airfields, they would take planes to repair depots, they'd sort of move them around as needed, and it freed up RAF pilots to be in combat um, and not being at home in, in Britain sort of shuttling planes around. Um, and there is a similar um, effort in the US that started a bit later as all women units uh, moving warplanes. And so when I started writing, I wasn't sure if I would have Marion fly in the UK or the US, but um, as I wrote, I decided to send her over to the UK as 20 something American women did. They went over and um, and flew during the war and had these really interesting sort of purposeful wartime experiences and I actually went to the archives at the Hoover Institution at Stanford and, and read some of their personal papers and letters home. And it's really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, were you modeling Marion on anyone in particular? I mean, you mentioned Jean Batten, but were there any other models that you were looking for with these um, women who really broke the mold at their time at that time? Yeah, I certainly read a lot about um, lots of different female pilots. And Amelia Earhart, of course, is the, the pilot that everyone thinks of when you say you're writing about a, a female pilot, which, you know, the inspiration that I drew from her sort of primarily was about um, the difference between disappearance and death. Amelia Earhart, in my opinion, which I think is the right opinion, <laughs> Um, almost certainly uh, crashed in the ocean and drowned uh, in 1937 on her attempt to get to Howland Island. It's just the Pacific Ocean, you know, as you in Australia know so well, is so big. There's not a lot of land. Any of the places where there are these sort of conspiracy theories where she might have landed are hundreds of miles away from where she was last heard of. It's basically impossible. Um, but it's always been fascinating to me how difficult that is for people to accept. And every time some so-called piece of evidence arises, like some grainy photo of something that's clearly not an airplane or clearly not Amelia Earhart, people are so credulous and grasp onto it and share it all over the internet. And then when it's debunked, that doesn't get shared. So it sort of has kept this life going. And, and so that was just one of my questions going into writing the book was, was what does it mean to disappear versus dying, even though they're often or perhaps usually the same thing. Um, and I read a lot about Amelia Earhart. I also read the books that she wrote. And, and she definitely had that, that spirit, too, that Marion and, and all these pilots had of just knowing they needed to fly, um, craving the sensation of flight, being sort of determined to do this despite the risks. And so I do have a, a lot of admiration for her as a person as well. And you have to read the book to see how that plot line is woven into the narrative. So there's also this other narrative thread about a contemporary actor, Hadley Baxter, who's sort of um, having some hard times managing how she's perceived in, by the world as an actor. Um, but she ends up performing as Marion in a movie about Marion. So what's her role in this story? Hadley was definitely a... Um... I didn't think of her right at the beginning. I I'd been writing for maybe a month. And then um, one day while I was working, I just sat down and I wrote a section in a really different voice, a first person narrative from this actress. And, and to me, it was suddenly apparent that this was kind of the missing piece of this, this 
Aviatrix novel I'd started working on. And it took me a little while to sort of work out exactly how that would function. But um, her storyline also became a way for me to sort of get at this, this question of how much is lost when somebody dies. And here's Hadley trying to reconstruct who Marion was based on this long chain of, of um, sort of increasingly diluted information. So there's Marion's actual life, which the reader's very closely privy to. And there's the logbook Marion leaves behind and, and maybe some secondhand accounts of her. And the logbook is sort of transformed into a novel by um, a writer. And then the novel is being made into this movie. And, and as she sort of delves more deeply into Marion's life, she can see how far off um, the story is from what really happened. And, um, you know, as someone who's very famous, I think Hadley has a lot of thoughts about privacy and, and, and mixed up feelings about that loss. And I guess that explains um, the long view of history that you present us with as well, because we do get these chapters which are titled An Incomplete History of Missoula, Montana, uh, that opens with the phrase 15,000 years ago. So <laughs> what are you getting at here in, in um, I guess that's the, the some more circles I'm sort of wondering about mm-hmm. and connections. Yeah, these also weren't part of my original plan, partly because I had no plan when I started writing, but... Um, one thing I didn't know I was writing about from the beginning was scale, both sort of geographical scale, geological scales, it turned out, um, I would say, you know, the scale of, of human life versus the scale of the planet, um, scale of one life versus all the lives being lived. And so in these sections where I sort of zoom through history, like starting with this, this ice age lake that existed where the city of Missoula now is, Missoula is on sort of what was the lake bed of a 2000 foot deep lake. Um, I was sort of trying to just show how much happens in a place and just sort of um, get at also this other form of unknowability that we really only see just this briefest instant and the briefest little sliver of the world. Um, And that's something that that drives Marion too. And it's sort of a frustration for her. She wants to see more, but it's not possible. Do you think being shortlisted for the booker will change you? (laughs) I don't think it'll change me. I think it's best to sort of try to think this is great. I'm grateful for it. I'm honored by it. I'm proud of it. But, you know, day to day, you can't be like, I'm not doing the dishes. I'm shortlisted for the Booker Prize, you know. <laughs> you could try it. <laughs> yeah. But I uh, I try to just sort of let go of, of the good things as well as the bad things because, you know, my goal is to keep writing books. And it's hard to do that if if you're thinking, you know, will this be good enough by everyone else's standards to measure up to the last one? And, and um, it's okay with me if my books are different from each other. Mm. Uh, well, I look forward to reading the next one. Thanks so much, Maggie Shipstead, and good luck. Thank you.